0: Welcome to Nakubo in Brief, a podcast series from the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO John Walda, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission with this podcast is to help our listeners better understand the challenges that face the business of higher education. Our hope is that you walk away with a stronger sense of the trends, policies, legislative, and regulatory issues that may impact campuses today and in the future. You can find resources. For today's episode, as well as a wide variety of educational tools, at www.nakubo.org. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Nakubo in Brief. My name is Megan Strand, your host. Thanks so much for being here with us. I'm excited to be joined once again by Megan Schneider, who is Assistant Director of Federal Affairs for Nakubo, and a new guest, Jarrett Cummings, who is Director of Policy and Government Relations for Educause. And today, we are all going to be discussing all sorts of interesting things relating to IT and the internet. Welcome, both of you. Thank you. Thank you. I wonder if you could start us off today, Jarrett, by telling us a little bit about Educause.
1: Sure. Well, EDUCAUSE is the Association for the Advancement of IT in Higher Education. Uh, Our core mission is supporting higher education chief information officers and IT professionals in that work. Um, We have approximately 2,400 member institutions and organizations, uh, with about 2,000 of those being colleges and universities, uh, approximately 300 companies and then a number of other related organizations. and I just would also like to highlight um, our inter- enterprise IT program, uh, which co-hosts an annual summit with Nakubo, uh, where we bring together finance and administration, as well as IT leaders to explore how best to deploy systems and other technology to support uh, institutional leadership and management. Uh, it's a major example of the great relationship we have with Nikubo uh, that we really value.
0: Let's talk a little bit about net neutrality first. There's been a lot of media media coverage lately about net neutrality and changes being proposed by the FCC. So for those who may not be following closely on this topic, what does net neutrality even mean and why should colleges and universities be concerned? And I'll let you take this one again, Jared.
1: Well, net neutrality gets described in a variety of ways, uh, but in practical terms, it refers to the idea that companies providing internet access to the general public should treat all internet traffic transiting their networks in roughly the same way, subject to reasonable network management practices that ensure effective network operations. Um, So temporarily handling different types or sources of data differently to avoid crashing a network is one thing, but giving preferential treatment to some data over others because it serves an ISP's commercial commercial interests is, is quite another. And so without net neutrality protections, commercial ISPs could pick winners and losers online. And that's a major concern for EDUCAUSE and Kubo members. Um, I like to think about a, a, uh, an example that a retired colleague of mine, Steve Verona, often brings up when we talk about this issue. Um, he notes that without net neutrality rules, there's really nothing to prevent a major ISP from buying an online learning provider and giving its courses preferential treatment while slowing the online courses of traditional colleges and universities or requiring them to pay extra fees to ensure that their online courses will work for students as intended. Um, Likewise, it's not unreasonable to think that major Internet companies might easily outbid colleges and universities to ensure that high-def movies, for example, uh, stream with no problems, while users of our online courses and learning resources encounter painfully slow or intermittent access to them. And we know that only a few seconds delay in access to content can frustrate the learning process. So the possibility of any noticeable delay in accessing our offerings could have outsized impacts on the success of our online programs. Also, as we increasingly move to cloud services to support the management of our institutions, the distortion of transmission speeds, if one form of traffic is unduly favored over others, could negatively impact the use of those services.
0: So Megan, what are Nakubo and EDUCAUSE doing to make the case for higher ed on net neutrality? And what, if anything, can business officers do to support these efforts?
2: Great question. So Nakubo and EDUCAUSE are working together to do quite a bit on net neutrality. Um, So as uh, most listeners know, we have a new administration. And with that came heads of new uh, agencies, including the FCC. The new head of the FCC, uh, a guy by the name of Ajit Pai, has expressed his um, sort of opposition to net neutrality, as have multiple members of Congress, as has the administration to some extent. Net neutrality came about um, during the Obama administration when the Internet went from being classified as a Title I information service and was reclassified as a Title II uh, telecommunications service, much like uh, the phones are. Um, And Commissioner uh, Pai has proposed reverting back and sort of doing away with net neutrality under this notice of proposed rulemaking. So, um, Nakubo and EDUCAUSE are working together to respond to that notice of proposed rulemaking. um, But we also issued a statement shortly after Chairman Pai announced these uh, plans, and that's available on both the Nakubo and EDUCAUSE websites. Um, But I would say in this, we certainly have our work cut out for us. Um, with an administration and, you know, members of Congress that are pretty outspoken about their opposition to it. I think a lot of what we're doing right now is just educating all these different officials as to why net neutrality is so important to higher ed. I think a lot of people think about net neutrality as something that really only impacts uh, a business community or, you know, private industry. And um, as Jared just so clearly explained, that really isn't the case. So we've been doing a lot both in trying to educate, Um, the FCC and other players in this area as to why net neutrality is so important to colleges and universities in fulfilling their public service mission. Um, And in terms of what college and university business officers can do to support those efforts, absolutely be talking to your research librarians, be talking to your chief information officers, um, sort of gauge the impact of what uh, changes to net neutrality will uh, Uh, do to your campus and share those with Nakubo. share those with EDUCAUSE, Um, on-campus stories are a great resource in helping us to make those those cases to the FCC. So absolutely reach out to Jarrett and myself after you've uh, seen the impact on the elimination of net neutrality on your campus.
0: Switching gears just a little bit, I understand that Nakubo and EDUCAUSE recently reminded CBOs and CIOs of their compliance requirements under the safeguards provision of the Graham-Leach-Bliley Act. And this reminder came in light of a proposed new audit requirement from the Office of Management and Budget. Megan, can you tell us a little bit more about this proposed requirement and why OMB and the Department of Ed are asking for this area to be audited now?
2: Um, So from the outset, I will say that uh, Nakubo and EDUCAUSE's advocacy efforts were really successful in this particular case and that we got this proposed audit requirement delayed. Um, It won't be included until FY18 audits. Originally, it was supposed to be included on FY17 audits. So we're really happy that we've gotten that extra time for colleges and universities to prepare for this new audit requirement. Um, But when we talk about why OMB and why the Department of Ed are asking for this area to be audited now, I think it's important to note that it's not just these two agencies. Federal agencies across the board are looking at what they need to be doing to making sure that all sort of associated entities and regulated entities are doing what they need to do to make sure that uh, the cybersecurity and the data information that they have access to is secure. Um, I think our listeners all are familiar with the uh, sort of snafu with the IRS data retrieval tool that happened earlier this year, um, where that tool that uh, most college students use to help them fill out their FAFSA forms for financial aid um, was compromised. And the IRS had real concerns about whether or not the data that students were providing in that form was secure. And I think that that really sort of spurred both OMB and the Department of Ed and other agencies to realize oh, wow, you know, colleges and universities have access to students' social security numbers, to their banking information, to addresses, to all sorts of data that um, a lot of, you know, bad actors would love to get access to and sort of realized we need to be making sure that colleges and universities are doing everything that they can to make sure that this data is secure. Um, And to that end, Nakubo and Educause um, were lucky enough to uh, work with OMB to see the different stages of this proposed audit requirement and how it changed both um, independent of our input and with our input. Um, and primarily the new audit requirement will follow um, the safeguards provision of the GLBA and uh, the, the requirements of the new audit requirement will closely follow what colleges and universities have already been responsible for being in compliance with in, with regards to the safeguards rule, which is why we sort of took that opportunity to remind institutions Um, And there's quite a few resources related to safeguards provision uh, compliance on both the NACUBO and the EDUCAUSE website. Um, So I think, Jarrett, and please interject if you disagree, but I think as long as colleges and universities are doing what they need to do to be in compliance with the safeguards provision of GLBA and also making sure that they're taking steps to document it, that they should be fine under this new audit requirement. Um, and we definitely encourage members to make use of all of the resources we have available with them to make sure that they are in compliance.
1: No, I completely agree. I um, I think that the uh, wisdom of uh, revamping the audit objective as it, we expect to see it come FY18 was that it moved back to... Uh, Uh, really following the safeguards rule and the provisions of the rule, such that as an institution, you can simply look down the provisions of the rule and say, are we doing this? Are we doing this? Are we doing this? And so it takes out of play some of the more interpretive uh, aspects of the original text, which was a concern not just for higher education, but also for the audit community, Um, because what they recognized is uh, that making uh, interpretations about uh, the nature of uh, what's been done in information security at an institution requires specialized expertise that an auditor, uh, your, your standard auditor, wouldn't necessarily have. And so um, without refocusing the audit objective on compliance and not interpretation, you would get in a situation where institutions would have to absorb uh, significant additional costs for their audits just for this one particular issue.
0: Jarrett, what are the best practices that you recommend CBOs put in place to ensure that their institution is meeting their safeguards rule compliance requirements in time? Um, And then what can CBOs be doing to ensure that their campuses are generally being good stewards of data security?
1: Well, I think specifically in relation to the safeguards rule first, I think Megan hit upon one of the key issues, which is that um, even though the, the safeguards rule has been in place since the early 2000s, and it's applied to higher education that entire time, uh, no one has really uh, audited for safeguards rule compliance from an external perspective before. Um, so institutions may selectively have included safeguards rule compliance as part of their internal um, institutional audit checklist uh, for their own purposes, to make sure that they are you know, in compliance with what they need to be in client, compliance with. However, federal agencies or, uh, or other organizations weren't asking about those issues. So if an institution hasn't been auditing for safeguards rule compliance on its own, it may be in compliance, but just not have the relevant policies and processes documented with the safeguards rule in mind. Um, And I think this is particularly uh, important because of that, you know, timescape that we're talking about, the rule being in place since the early 2000s. Um, Many of the uh, issues that it addresses would now be considered foundational for cybersecurity, uh, such as having a designated lead for information security, uh, conducting a risk assessment and using it to inform and update your institutional information security plan and so forth. Um, So, you know, institutions may very well have all of the various provisions of the safeguards rule covered, but since they haven't been asked to document it in relation to the safeguards rule before, they may need some time and some guidance from their audit firms in terms of how they uh, organize and present that information for audit purposes. Um, So in the near term, I think, uh, you know, CBOs, CIOs, and relevant staff members should review the safeguards rule requirements together, uh, discuss how the elements of the rule are represented in the institution's policies and practices already, and confirm with the institution's audit firm how those need to be documented to meet their audit expectations. And I think to leverage those efforts for, you know, broader institutional progress, I would recommend that they use the information security guide for higher education developed by the EDUCAUSE Higher Education Information Security Council to inform their efforts. Um, the guide specifically addresses safeguards rule compliance, but it also provides a framework and resources for cam- Uh, for campus information security more broadly. And so starting with it will help inform this near-term audit response, but also open the door to um, more productive collaboration and development of campus cybersecurity.
0: Let's move on to IT accessibility, which is becoming an increasingly important issue on college and university campuses, particularly with the rise of digital learning materials, online enrollment. And student service portals, and the advent of social media as both a communication and recruiting tool. Megan, can you speak about some of the challenges that this has presented for colleges and universities?
2: Absolutely. Um, So, we've seen this come about as an issue of importance for campuses in a a number of different ways. Um, We've seen some litigation that colleges and universities have dealt with um, concerning IT accessibility, Um, but we've also seen action by the administration a little bit over. A year ago, the Department of Justice issued a Supplemental advance Notice of Proposed Rulemaking, which is quite a mouthful in itself, um, but it was sort of uh, the Justice Department's way of realizing that um, governmental entities needed to be accessible and their online materials needed to be accessible. And while you know, I think they sort of had in mind places like your local DMV or, you know, Public Works Department, um, because of the wording that the Justice Department used, it also sort of caught up public institutions, public colleges and universities in that net. Um and Nakubo and EDUCAUSE and a number of other higher ed associations responded to that notice um and illustrated and made the case that when we're talking about higher ed institutions, their web complex or web excuse me, web presence is so much more complex than that of, you know, your standard department of motor vehicles or something like that that just has sort of one central page and maybe a couple of other related pages therein where you can you know get the different materials you need when we look at a college and u- college or university they of course have one central page those pages are just on their face very complex there are lots of different resources just on a university's main .edu website um, but also caught up in this, in Justice's proposal, would be sort of every website that a university has um, hosts on their server. And that could be anything from, you know, sort of an over the counter online uh, por- student portal, sort of like a Blackboard type thing. It could be um, a college or university's own version of that if they built their own. It could be a university professor who has created his own website to make materials available to his students it could be a student association or a student club that has uh, a website to uh, connect with its members or to recruit um new members and i mean it's everything from a university's facebook page to their youtube channel to their snapchat so uh we really sort of in responding to the justice department tried to illustrate that when we're talking about colleges and universities The web presence is so complex that and there's no sort of central control of all the different things that uh, a university can be tied to in terms of web content that uh, it's not really comparable to other governmental associations. And that if we're going to look at issues of um, IT accessibility in colleges and universities, we really sort of need to treat it as its own sort of unique entity. Luckily, the Justice Department, partly as a result of the administration change, partly as a result of uh, new people coming into the Justice Department, has, for the time, sort of realized that their efforts maybe do need a little bit more review. They need to um, investigate the time and monetary burden associated for with colleges and universities trying to meet what they would like to have uh, as IT accessibility requirements. Um, but it's, I would say it's certainly an issue that's not going away, and as we said before, Justice is looking at this, Department of Ed is looking at this, OMB is looking at this, so um, I think it's certainly something for colleges and universities to keep in mind.
0: Jaret, can you tell us about how some campuses have successfully tackled different elements of IT accessibility, and what can colleges and universities do going forward to build accessibility into their digital footprint from the
1: very beginning? I think the institutions that have achieved the most success in relation to IT accessibility uh, recognize that it's a whole campus issue. It's not just an IT concern or one that needs to be considered and managed on an ad hoc basis. Um, It really requires institutional commitment to assessing the institutional IT environment as a whole, including the web environment uh, for accessibility issues, and then developing an institutional strategy for governance, policy, and practice Um, to resolve those issues and maintain an accessible uh, institution moving forward. Uh, So, for example, uh, being thoughtful about where and how to incorporate accessibility into IT procurement and faculty development is a major part of the process. Um, Given the range of potential disabilities that members of the campus community may have, Uh, Finding technology systems and resources that will work for multiple categories of disability may not be easy or even possible in some cases, Uh, but having a procurement process that takes major accessibility needs into account to the extent possible, and then being explicit as an institution about how you will meet student needs when it can't, or when it isn't, um, can significantly narrow the range of problems. Um, Likewise, having faculty members that understand the institution's responsibilities in relation to accessibility, uh, what they can do to help meet those responsibilities without uh, running into undue burdens, and where they can go for help in identifying appropriate digital resources is key. Yeah, if um, listeners are interested in uh, finding models uh, to follow, uh, there are a number of institutions doing good work in this area, uh, such as Penn State, uh, the California State University system through its accessible technology initiative, uh, the University of Washington, the University of Illinois, at North Carolina State University. Uh, you might search for their IT accessibility contacts or connect with the CIO's office for help in reaching them. I've heard about NIST generally, but what exactly do they do, Jared? Well, and this is one that uh, Megan and I talked about because I, uh, in, in my hubris, I thought, oh, this will be an easy one for me to answer. And then <laughs> When I tried to answer it off the top of my head, I'm like, oh, well, I know what it is, but explaining it is a whole different animal. Uh, so the, the National Institute Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, uh, is the U.S. Department of Commerce agency that's charged with developing and maintaining national standards across a variety of fields important to the economy and government, uh, from weights and measures to, in an area closer to home, information security. Uh, So, for example, NIST was charged with creating the cybersecurity framework for critical infrastructure to establish a common baseline and approach for information security across relevant sectors, uh, such as communications, energy, government, and so forth. Um, Now, the good news for us is that higher education doesn't fall under a critical infrastructure designation, uh, but our relationships to the federal government through research and student financial aid uh, mean that information security standards developed for or on behalf of the federal government increasingly impact our institutions.
0: Excellent job, Jarrett. Very concise. Thank you. I understand that NIST has a special publication that could have a significant impact for colleges and universities. Can you share what this is, Jared, and what it may mean for institutions? Uh,
1: We're talking about NIST Special Publication 800-171, which I will hereafter refer to simply as 800-171. It covers the uh, information security guidelines for federal federal data uh, designated as controlled unclassified information, or CUI, uh, that is held in non-federal government systems. So the main example that comes to mind for us uh, is information on federal student aid recipients distributed to colleges and universities by the U.S. Department of Education. This is data that's not classified, but it contains personally identifiable information that's certainly sensitive to the people involved. And so the federal government wants to make sure that when it shares this data uh, with, uh, in this case, colleges and universities, um, that that data is going to be held in a secure fashion. Uh, So in an effort to standardize CUI requirements across federal agencies, which Is a very important endeavor, given that uh, prior to uh, a few years ago, each agency defined CUI in a different way, handled it in a different way. And so you had this really uh, patchwork system of trying to address uh, CUI issues across the federal government. Uh, The Obama administration issued an executive order uh, mandating the development of uniform federal regulations. Uh, Those were released last year, and they were based upon the NIST 800-171 guidelines. Uh, So federal agencies still have to incorporate the uniform requirements into their grants and contracts, which largely hasn't happened yet outside the Department of Defense. Uh, And it may be some time yet before that happens. However, once it does... Uh, many institutions will have to revise and upgrade the information security of affected systems, meaning those systems that are holding the federal CUI in question. Uh, So I mentioned student financial aid as an example because federal student aid data may migrate from financial aid systems to other administrative systems, and the extent to which these federal CUI requirements will follow that data remains an open question. It's possible, though, that it may happen to such an extent that the 80171 171 guidelines could eventually become de facto baseline information security standards for higher education. Uh, that leaves us with the, you know, the point that even though 800-171 guidelines aren't yet generally mandated and may not be broadly applicable to colleges and universities for quite a while, Core administrative systems could ultimately be affected, uh, which makes it a good time for CBOs, CIOs, and their staffs to review the uniform requirements, which are known as the NARA uh, CUI rule after the National Archives and Records Administration, which was charged with its development. And to see where the institution stands in relation to those requirements and how it can best adapt or prepare as needed. Speaking of
0: CBOs and CIOs, Megan, do you have any final recommendations for ensuring that there's a strong working relationship between those two roles as these issues develop further?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So I think primarily the first thing for CBOs to realize is that this issue isn't going away. So if you're a CBO that hasn't given a ton of thought to IT, um, cybersecurity, data security, IT accessibility, all of the hosts of issues and regulations that accompany that, um, I would absolutely urge you to start thinking about it and to start making it a priority, whether or not the your campus IT or information services office reports up through the business office, it will have impacts on um, the functioning of the business office. So if you're a CBO that is not that familiar with this area, I would definitely encourage you to make use of Nakubo resources, Educator's resources, um, and your own chief information officer. Um, if you are not already meeting with that individual on your campus regularly, I'd encourage CBOs to make it a point to start meeting with them regularly. Um, I'd encourage them to make it a point to um sort of ask their information security officers to explain um, vulnerabilities or areas that they may have concerns about on their own campus, and to just give them a general sort of idea of the landscape of cybersecurity and IT functioning gen- generally on their campus. I think that we've seen through all of the different agencies' interests in this area Um, that it's only going to grow in importance as an issue affecting campus business offices. So really, I would just encourage business officers who are not already thinking about this pretty seriously uh, to make it a point and to start learning more about it because I think we all can see that technology is only playing a larger and larger role, certainly in our lives and on college and university campuses. And um, it's something that business offices really sort of need to start dealing with and treating as a priority. Well, thank you both
0: so much, Megan and Jarrett, for joining me today to talk about these critical issues. We certainly covered a lot of ground today.
1: We did. Yep, absolutely. Thank you so much for having us.
0: You can find out more about today's episode by visiting the distance learning section of Nakubo.org. Make sure you also subscribe to Nakubo In Brief in iTunes so that you'll get the latest episodes instantly. And on behalf of Megan, Jarrett, and myself, I'd like to thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Nakubo In Brief.